Welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. We're happy to have you with us here today. I'm Brad White, joined by Dr. Pendell and Dr. Weber. Morning, guys. Hey, how's it going, Brad? Good. It's getting close to football season, and there's time to start thinking about football coming up around the corner. So I was brushing up on my football news and found a good quote from the coach of the University of Michigan. He was talking about nutritional dietary needs, and his quote was, I take a vitamin every day. It's called a steak. So awesome. <laughs> so always good to get your nutritional advice from football coaches is the take-home lesson there. Yeah. <laughs> so we're happy to have you with us today. We're going to talk about a few things. Dr. Pendell has some questions on uh, consolidation. This time we're looking at some of the pasture ground, row crop ground. We're also going to address a question from one of our listeners on crossbreeding and how to best manage that program. Looking at forage testing, what do we what do we do? When do we want to do the forage testing, and what are we interested in? Wrap up with some pregnancy nutrition and talk about some upcoming conferences. But I wanted to start out, Dustin. You, you, we did some stuff last week on consolidation, and you had some follow up questions that you wanted to ask Bob and I. Yes. So last week we talked about consolidation, kind of in the livestock uh, industry came from a report through USDA Economic Research Service. Uh, if you want to read the full report, you can read those in, or find that in our show notes. Uh, so we want to continue on with that. Specifically, last week we talked about livestock. This week we want to talk about land. So we got cropland and uh, pasture. And so uh, we got two questions today for you guys. And uh, the first question, it, we changed it up a little bit. It's going to be a multiple choice, A and B. I wanted to increase the odds or probability. Right. <laughs> that gives me a chance. I could, right. I could get one right. And, and In fact, this first one is actually a softball, so that even increases the odds even more that he gets it right. All okay. right. So, the, so there's two. Uh, it's either larger or smaller. Okay. So it's fill in the blank. Cropland has shifted towards blank farms, larger or smaller farms, since since the 1980s. Larger. 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 That is correct, Brad. You got <laughs> you one correct. Uh, so that is correct. Cropland has shifted towards larger farms. Uh, and actually, it's happened from the 30s through the 70s, furthermore since the 80s. But the consolidation has become more complex in nature. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and so we think about land consolidation. The other component is pasture and rangeland. And so Second question is pasture and rangeland has shifted to towards larger, smaller, or none of the above, kind of stayed the same size since that's, basically the 1980s. I'd say larger again. I'll say larger to you. And so that's what have been my guess, but the correct answer is We're smaller. Wrong. Really? Smaller. Yeah, they've been shifted yeah. to smaller tracts of land. And so that, so the question then is why? And so they talk about some possible reasons, and we'll get to those here in a second. But just looking at some of the, the data, what we've seen is Farmland or cropland uh, from 2,000 acres or more has been increasing in size from about 15% of all cropland. 2,000 acres or more, uh, 1987 census, you compare that to the 2012 census, it's looking at about 30 36%, so it's a little more than doubled. Whereas anything less than uh, 1,000 acres has went from about 65% to, to 50%. So cropland, it is definitely getting bigger as, as you guys noted uh, in that seems like a lot of that would be due to the technology. So as the technology improves, you can farm a lot more land with a single person. You have more equipment, Correct. but you're, you're yep. farming a lot of that right. land. The economy this size. We, we discussed last week, we talked about the yep. technology as well as possible reasons. Yep. And maybe even some policy, ag policy implications or things that could be driving some of that as well. 
but that hasn't changed as much on the pasture side. No. So when you're grazing cattle, so I mean, right. we have better technologies there, but it's not the difference of moving from smaller equipment to larger uh, equipment. Tractors, yeah, 500 horsepower, GPS, yep. yeah. self-driven. Yep. And then looking at the uh, the figures from the pasture rangeland side, you know, in 1987, about 50 percent of of the pasture rangeland was held by, you know, 10,000 acres or more. You compare that to today or 2012, it's about 43 percent. So the larger operations got smaller, whereas the smaller operations uh, went, you know, less than 100 acres, went from about 2 percent to 5 percent. I know that's not a big you know, two, two and a half percent jump. Uh, but that was pushing almost 23 million acres. And why do you think that shift so that's, is occurring? That's a great question. I guess why, why might we see smaller? Uh, why, why do you think there might be smaller? I think because of the increasing land values. Uh, that, that's a possibility. I didn't actually, they never discussed it in the, the report itself, but they, that was one of the complexities that consolidation isn't just everybody's getting bigger yeah. it is actually on rangeland farmland or uh, pasture it's actually getting smaller yeah. so that was I guess one thing I wanted to yeah, yeah. pick your guys' so, brain and get yeah, your thoughts but it may, it may be related to the land values and yeah. changes over that time period and then as some of those bigger tracks break up when somebody new yeah. gets in yeah. they're not they're not buying a section or two in some cases, could be some transitional stuff as estates get settled. Yep, pieces of ground get sold could off. Could be, and, and that's one. Another thing I wonder is, as we've always heard, you know, farmers, you know, the average farm size is getting bigger. However, if you look in the another section of this report, the farm numbers actually rose for the smallest acreage. So anywhere from uh, one to fifty acres, uh, the actual s number of farms went up. Whereas if you look at total farms, everything has been Damn, getting smaller. So I think that kind of relates back to this, uh, and, and so the question is, why might that be happening? A couple things could be happening. We're starting to see more niche marketing, you know, kind of the local grazed. Uh, that's there are must maybe more opportunities for the smaller producers. I mean, I'm thinking on the horticulture side. You know, the, you see these. Yeah. Come pick your own strawberries as an yeah. example. Uh, comment they did make in this report was the definition standard definition of a farm hasn't changed since 1974 and the standard definition of a farm is anything that has a thousand dollars in total in sales and gross sales so if you think about time they haven't adjusted for inflation so a lot more people or operations might be considered a farm that weren't yeah that weren't maybe back in the 1970s so that might be a, and another reason why we start to see smaller operations or smaller uh, farmland or pasture and then finally, they said uh, they changed the way that the census was reported, the methodology, starting in 2002. And they were able to actually count uh, higher or smaller farms. They're getting more smaller farms included in the census. So, so changing the methodology. It could be a sampling issue. Yeah. It could be, you know, the definition of a farm. And then there just could be some additional I'm, opportunities. I'm curious. You may know the number off, off the top of your head about sort of the the number of cows in the sort of the smallest category. Um, and I'm wondering if that's, you know, if you think about pasture ground, 
landholders, the smallest group increasing, you sort of maybe see a parallel trend in more new entrants in that smaller group of and producers. And, and I don't have I don't have the numbers count numbers off the hand. The only thing I printed off here was just the uh, the crop acres, but that would be you're probably right. Yeah, you would see more the number of cows in the smaller farm size getting getting larger. That's really interesting that it's we talk about consolidation, but it's not not just across the board. And so that, I think that's the kind of the take home is we tend to think, okay, the average age of a producer is getting older. We think uh, the size of the farm is getting bigger, but in reality, you shouldn't just look at that average. You got to look at the whole look at the whole, the whole picture, the whole distribution of the data, and really dig deep into it to get to to get to a clear picture. Excellent. Thanks cool. for thanks for bringing those. The one one of the things that that we also wanted to address. We got a question from one of our listeners, and Bob, I'll, I'll turn it to you. We the question was, if you've got a and they've got Angus Hereford heifers, Angus cross Hereford heifers. So yep. typically we think of as a black white face. And the question was, what should we what should we breed those two to produce the best commercial? Beef. So you, yeah. you got to kind of define right. yeah. what are the targets. Yeah, what's the target? And I think in, in any time we talk about a, a breeding system, whether that's a, a cross-breeding one or a straight-breeding one, one of the things we need to, to sort of clearly define, uh, and not surprisingly, is what is our market target, right? So um, having a clear idea of where we need to go sort of helps guide the decision-making process. And so real real briefly, I would, I would say, you know, probably two primary, uh, if it's a smaller producer, um, maybe two potential market targets. One of those might be black baldy cows um, mated to some kind of terminal type bull maybe, um, can be um, uh, a way so what to go. Are, if what, are some examples, what, are, what are some examples well, of so when you're saying terminal type bull, what do, you, what do you mean? Yeah, so something that's really high growth. We would traditionally think of those as uh, maybe some of the continental breeds like uh, Gelpie or Simmental, Charlet, Limousin, those kinds of breeds. Um, although, you know, the British breeds have really changed a lot in terms of their growth potential. So you could potentially think about maybe picking a terminal type Angus bull um, to go into that, that system as well. Um, but when you say terminal, though, we're not, would you, would you recommend keeping replacement heifers out of that mating? Probably not. Um, so terminal means sell all of them through the, the marketing channel and, and not retain any of those heifer calves back as, as replacements. We, we can do a better job um, targeting our, our selection emphasis if we really focus on, you know, are we going to build replacement females or are we going to breed um, calves for the marketplace and kind of separate those maternal terminal mating decisions. I did note on, on the thing, though, it says heifers. So um, if these are uh, first calf uh, uh, or virgin heifers that we're going to breed for their first calf, usually calving ease is a, is a really big criteria. And we can add some other things, you know, breeds of um, improved calving ease performance a lot, so we can actually make some calves that have a fair bit of, of performance and growth to them. You know, the, the other piece that comes in here is if, if we're gonna target for, say somebody's thinking about, you know, you mentioned niche markets earlier, uh, Dustin, um, uh, maybe they're gonna do some custom freezer beef uh, kind of marketing. Um, you know, one of the British breeds like Angus or Red Angus that brings marbling to the table and sort of fleshing ability would be a, a good choice. And, and you can manage kind of the, the carcass and calving ease components of that pretty well um, in that sort of system. So, so we, talk about plan, the, we talk about the value of heterosis and they, they mentioned in this case Angus Hereford cross heifers and then you said one of your options was breed back to a British breed. Does that lose some of our heterosis? Do we still get as yeah, much great, value? Great question. So um, real quickly, the, the, the heterosis benefits roughly fall out. About two thirds of the economic benefit comes from having crossbred cows. 
and one third from having crossbred calves. And in gross worth about, in today's market, somewhere uh, an F1 female made it to a third breed bull, that net's about 150 bucks a cow a year. So let's say a hundred of that, two thirds of it, is roughly the value of having that crossbred cow. Um, certainly that's the, the biggest chunk and the, and the one that's ultimately maybe the hardest to capture and manage, but the most important. Um, and so, you know, in a case where we go back and say use an Angus bull on these black baldy heifers, we lose heterosis in the calf, uh, half of it in fact, um, but we've still got all the heterosis in the cow. And so we, we capture, in that case, somewhere about $120 or $25 worth of, of heterosis value in that system. Um, but certainly a thing, to, you know, you, you don't want to sort of wish away $50 of, of calf value by making calves more straight bread. So, um, yeah, kind of think through that plan. But they've and they've done well so far with having crossbred yeah, they, heifers step, there. Step one's crossbred heifers. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a good plan. And and really, what we want to do is have a plan and figure out if we're doing a terminal cross, or are we making more heifers? Yep. Are we selling at weaning? Are we selling finished beef? And planning that out is is an important step because yep. too often it seems like the momentum just we're just going to get this type of bowl, put it on the cows, and yeah. keep doing the same thing. And sometimes the easy thing is not always the most profitable. Thing. Exactly. So I'll, put, I'll put a link in the in the show notes, uh, a chapter or two out of uh, a beef sire selection manual that I've authored um, on this very topic, in fact. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yep. So speaking of the easy things, not always the way to go. A lot of times we put up hay this time of year, we've put up our feed supplies, we're feeling pretty good going into winter, or we've got some storage. One of the questions that you had was thinking about forage testing. So should we test that now? Should we wait until it's seasoned, until we get closer to winter? What's the appropriate? Yeah, so great, great question. I, I was thinking about this on the way in. I saw um, uh, a fair number of folks kind of rolling up some uh, some later season prairie hay um, and got me thinking about um, you know forage testing. And, and one of the strategies that um, I want our, our producers to think about is, you know, as you start accumulating um, forage, and I know in this part of the state there's been a lot of ground, CRP ground released for some grazing and haying activities, um, and, you know, CRP hay probably historically wouldn't have the same kind of nutrient analysis as a typical um, fertilizer seasonally harvested prairie hay. Um, and so getting that product tested so you kind of know what you've got um, and think of forward about what other supplementation might I need to provide um, to those cows, principally in the area of protein, right? So um, we know those cows, um, you know, late gestation, uh, after, particularly after we wean calves, nutrient demand's not that huge, um, but it's an opportunity if we need to put some body condition score back on cows, you've got about a 100 day window in there to do that. Um, very cost effectively if you wait until cows are you know right up in front of calving or post calving accumulating body condition scores really difficult and expensive so figuring out what what you've got in terms of forage resource between now and calving um, you then know what do I need to buy some distillers or cubes or what do I need to maybe alfalfa hay some kind of protein supplement to meet those protein requirements for cows and ha having a plan is critical because Dustin you talked a couple weeks ago about the when you did the cow calf survey you looked at the high cost producers low right. cost or high profit producers low profit producers hay cost feed cost was one of the big differences between those groups right and I don't recall the exact numbers off the top of my head but I mean you're talking 60 70 percent of your total variable costs are related to feed yeah um, so so planning out how to best utilize that available forage and feed stuff and, and we 
typically think of that through the winter. So we've got spring calvers, we're thinking about through the winter, how are we gonna feed them? What about, what about right now? So these cows, a lot of spring calvers are early to mid gestation when typically I think of coasting. Can we just coast through this time period? Yeah, so there's uh, actually some, some pretty interesting research done. Um, uh, researchers at North Dakota State and University of Nebraska kind of been leaders in this area in the, in the area of fetal programming and understanding what sort of neo or you know, gestational nutrition or insults to nutrition have on subsequent calf performance. And uh, um, the, the data is, is I, th I think it's really interesting in that um, it sort of points to the idea that if we supplement, particularly um, some of the work Rick Funston did in Nebraska was around this idea of protein supplementation of cows. The subsequent calves, um, uh, so this would be um, uh, mid to late gestation differences in, in protein supplementation, adequate or slightly restricted. Um, and what they found was the calf performance to weaning was better, um, better um, uh, rate of puberty um, by the beginning of the breeding season, better conception rates, um, and better performance of those replacement heifers for their first calves. Which is um, amazing when you think about that the nutrition during mid-gestation, so that calf's not even born yet, affected yeah. for their life. Yeah. Or at least through weaning and through breeding. Yeah, it, it had uh, substantial impacts. Um, and, and not really any, any differences in, in dry matter intake or average daily gain of those animals um, or feed efficiency of the, the subsequent calves. Um, but big differences in sort of um, uh, gain performance. Um, so I kind of think, start thinking about it as, um, you know, we, we can measure chronologic age, right? So the days they are in gestation, the days of age after birth. Um, but there's also physiological maturity, right? And so I'm wondering if, if some of these calves, that when you have appropriate nutrition, they're just more physiologically mature at any chronological point in time. During gestation, because what, because why? Well, what happens? Do yeah, we know so, why? Um, the, uh, and I'll put both of these links in, in the show notes. There's a, a, a follow-up paper that researchers are trying to understand this sort of mechanism. And so they've done some follow-up work, which really is change in nutrition of cows, uh, or they did a set of heifers, um, immediately after, so it was common diet to breeding, AI bred, synchronized AI bred, and then put on one of two uh, diets. One was about a 60% restriction. Um, the other one was a diet to gain about a pound a day fed them for 50 days, um, uh, took uh, hysterectomies of those cows, uh, took the conceptus, um, did a bunch of RNA work, so measuring differing levels of gene expression for various proteins in different tissues, and they found differences. So there's an up and down regulation of different gene sets based on nutritional application. So, so the nutrition to the dam affected the gene expression, expression by the calf. By the fetus, yep. yeah. Yeah, pretty crazy. That's interesting. So our, our take home- I think about you know, the, the, the uterus and that fetus is as nutritionally insulated as any other system in that cow, which is it's just kind of crazy. Yeah, so, and it's really, we can't coast at any time. So we, we want them to be, but you don't have to have a high plane of nutrition. You just need to have adequate Adam. nutrition is what the research has shown. Right. Is if it's restricted right. is when we run into some of those issues. So yeah. adequate is good. You don't have to feed them a lot yeah. during this time of year. And their maintenance requirements are typically less yeah. at this time yeah. of year. So in mid gestation.
So th the other things that are coming up, uh, Dr. Larson and I are going to NCBA this week. Dustin, you've got a, a conference coming up that you've been planning. Yes, so next week uh, I've got a post-conference workshop that we've been planning for about, I don't know, over a little over a year now, but it's a title of it's Economics of Animal Health and Biosecurity. So we're flying folks in from kind of all over the country, but also have some officials from Mexico, I think somebody from Peru, Australia, the UK, and Canada come in and talk about various AMR, biosecurity, surveillance, uh, and vaccination, vaccination bank issues. And is that conference, where is that conference? That will be held uh, in Washington, D.C. Okay. Excellent. So we, we've enjoyed having you with us this week, and we look forward to talk to you again next week.